Let's turn to the 16th chapter of 1 Corinthians. We've come to the end of this great letter by the Apostle Paul. We've learned a number of very helpful things in our study of this book. And we saw from the first four chapters the basis of our spiritual power. Our reliance is not on men and their capabilities and their training and education and background and ability, but uh, rather it's on the Lord. Everything we have comes as a result of our relationship to him. He's our source of strength. He's what we need to cope with life and face life and its, and its difficulties. And then in chapter 5, we saw the need to deal redemptively with problems in the body. Uh, whenever someone is, is beginning to weaken and, and fall away or they're struggling, we need to act redemptively to help them, restore them in their walk and fellowship with the Lord. And then in chapter 6, we saw Paul's great teaching on sex and, and our bodies and what our bodies are for. And then in chapter 7, some guidelines for healing a, a hurting marriage. And then in chapters 8 and 9 and 10, the limits of our Christian liberty. We saw the freedom that we enjoy in Christ, but, uh, but love limits that freedom. There are certain things we can't do because of our love for one another. And then in chapters 11 through 14, we saw how the church works. It's not a, an organization, it's an organism. It's a body that functions together as our bodies function, each member sharing the life of the cell that's adjacent to it and, and serving and caring for itself in this way. And then Paul concludes his book, at least the formal portion of his book in chapter 15, with this great note of triumph, the resurrection of the body and uh, the promise that God is going to give us a body that will be equal to the demands of the Spirit. Now, these are all themes that Paul has been tracing through the book of Corinthians, and these are ideas that we've been looking at because they're ideas that equip us for life. That's, after all, what the Scriptures are for. They're designed to teach us how to live life as man was intended to live it. And then in chapter 16, we come to Paul's concluding note, his a salutation, words of farewell to the people in Corinth and greetings from the people in Ephesus uh, from which uh, city he was writing this, this letter. Paul's concerned about a number of things. Let's, uh, let's observe them as we read through the chapter. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper, that no collections be made when I come. And when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I shall send them with letters to carry your gifts to Jerusalem. And if it is appropriate for me to go also, they will go with me. Now, Paul's first concern is for the poor in Jerusalem because this is something that uh, is always associated with Christian faith, a concern for the oppressed and the downtrodden, the poverty-stricken, the weak and the needy. This is what uh, characterized Jesus in his ministry. He says of himself that he came to preach the gospel to the poor, to bring uh, release to the captives, deliver those that were in bondage and oppressed and weak and, uh, and in poverty. And so this likewise is Paul's concern. Now it appears that these saints in Jerusalem were frequently in need of collections. We don't know why, 
But uh, Jerusalem was never a very wealthy city, and the people there didn't seem to have a great deal of money. In addition, they were being persecuted by their Jewish brothers at this time, and and it was a very difficult time uh, for these uh, saints in Jerusalem. And so Paul wants to gather a collection for them and take the money to uh, to Jerusalem to meet their needs. It's always characteristic of us in our relationship to Christ that we're concerned about the weak and the poor. Now, Jesus had that sort of outlook on things. He was probably the most poverty-stricken individual the world has ever seen. He said of himself, the birds have nests and foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He, he had no money, and yet he himself gave. They, they kept a purse. It was kept in Judas' possession, and from that purse they gave to the poor. And now Paul is concerned about these poor saints in Jerusalem as well. And he gives us some guidelines in this paragraph on giving, and they're very helpful. First of all, he tells us, our giving ought to be methodical. In other words, we shouldn't give because uh, of some emotional pressure, because of some appeal to uh, uh, that's based primarily and fundamentally on, on emotions. We ought to be methodical and planned and thought out in our giving. As God has prospered us, Paul says. The New Testament knows nothing of a tithe. That's that was the Old Testament pattern of, of giving. In the theocracy, in the God-ruled nation, they gave a tenth, they gave a certain percentage. But uh, under the New Covenant, there's no percentage designated. It's as God has prospered. Uh, if you're poor, perhaps you can only give 5% or 2% or 1%. Or if, you, uh, if God has enriched you this past year, you may be able to give 50%. Or 75%, or one man that I know gives 90% of his income and lives very comfortably on the 10% that's, that's left. There's no percentage designated. It's, the pattern is always the prosperity that God has given to us. And as we take a look at our income and what God has done for us, we need to plan methodically to give on a regular basis, not because of emotional appeals. Paul says, as a, as a matter of fact, there won't be any appeals. I want this collection gathered before I come, because there will be no uh, thermometers when I come, there will be no fundraisers, no running up and down the halls and, and aisles uh, calling for, uh, for money. We won't do that. We want you to give. As God, as the grace of God moves in the hearts of his people, he motivates to give. The principle is always, as Jesus put it, as you have freely received, freely give. And Paul says, here are some some saints over in Jerusalem who are needy, and God has freely given to you in Greece. The Greek churches apparently were much more affluent. And so Paul calls upon them to share what they have with the more needy saints in Jerusalem and to do so methodically. And secondly, Paul says, you're to do so in a personal way. The thing that strikes me about giving in the New Testament is that it's almost always giving to individuals, giving to the saints, those that were involved in ministry or those who were, who were poor and needy physically. They didn't give through institutions. In fact, there weren't any institutions in those days set up to give. But, but much of our giving today is very impersonal because we tend to give the United Way or we give uh, to an organization rather than to people. And I think as a result, we're robbed of some of the benefits of giving directly to people in need. 
uh, we, our government has granted us the privilege of taking certain tax advantages by giving through organizations, and that's proper. We should take advantage of that benefit when it's available to us, but that shouldn't stop us from giving individually to people. It would be wrong for us to refuse to give to someone in need simply because we can't take the tax advantages that are available to us by giving through an organization. And for me, there's no greater blessing than taking a bit of money, whatever God has, has blessed us with, and placing it in the hands of some brother who has a deep need. Or buying a coat for someone who, who needs a coat this winter. Or gathering food together for someone that you know is in need and providing for them. You see, that's the kind of care that the members of, of God's body ought to have for, for one another. We ought to care for each other in practical ways. If you see a brother in need, meet that need, whatever it is, whether it's monetary or physical, whatever it may be. Give. As God has enriched you, give. Now, we have a, uh, we have a need right now in our body. There's a family here among us, the Whites, whom I think most of you know, who labored very effectively for the Lord in the Philippines for a number of years, and now Nick has come back to this area to undergo some further schooling so he can go back to the Philippines. And while they've been among us, they've, they've been living on less than $500 a month. Uh, when they receive that much, that's, that's their, the level of their giving, but often they don't even receive that amount. And now on top of uh, their existing need for ongoing expenses, they have a need, uh, they have a large hospital bill as a result of Ruthie being in the hospital. Now this is a need that we as a body need to meet. There's information in the bulletin, which you can look at later, but it will tell you how you individually, as a, as a member of this family, can help the whites. We need to help them with this financial, the hospital bill that they have and their ongoing financial need. But you see, this is a very practical, tangible expression of our love for one another. We can talk about love, but it means nothing unless we act. As James puts it, if, you're, if a brother or sister comes to your door and they're in need of food and clothing and we don't give them the things that they need for their body, how can we say that the love of Christ abides in us? You see, we can't. Love acts. Now, that's Paul's first uh, point here regarding the collection for the saints. Love will act and will give as God prospers. And then in verse 10, he mentions Timothy. Now, if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid. For he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. Let no one therefore despise him, but send him on his way in peace, so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. We know a great deal about Timothy from the New Testament. He had two letters written to him, the books of First and Second Timothy. He was Paul's associate throughout much of his ministry. He was a young man whom Paul met on his second missionary journey in the city of Lystra in Asia, just north of Ephesus, where Paul was when he wrote the book of First Corinthians. And uh, he gathered Timothy in and took him along with him with this uh, group of young men which he was training for the ministry. We gather from what Paul tells us in the books of First and Second Timothy that uh, this young man was inclined to be timid and easily intimidated. 
Paul repeatedly throughout those books calls on Timothy to be strong and, and act like a man and have courage because apparently he had trouble acting like a man. There were, there were some times that uh, Timothy didn't appear to be strong. Now, I may be wrong. I've often thought I may run into Timothy in heaven and he'll be some huge uh, six-foot-eight uh, fellow who's anything but timid. But that's the impression that's given to us in the New Testament. He was weak, and he was in a learning capacity. He wasn't always effective in what he was doing. He was inclined to be despised. In Second uh, Timothy, Paul says to, to Timothy, Don't let anyone despise your youth, but be an example of the believer. And here he calls on the Corinthian church not to despise Timothy, because apparently as a young man, and as an immature leader, he was having problems. They looked down on him. They wouldn't follow him. They didn't appreciate his ministry, even though Paul says he's engaged in the Lord's work. That is, he was involved in this redemptive task of, of healing broken lives, bringing beauty out of the ashes of, of, of a life that's been destroyed and marred by sin, teaching people how to break uh, harmful habits, all of the things that the gospel does for us, proclaiming liberty to captives, giving sight to the blind. He was involved in this ministry, as, as Paul says, as, as I am. We're associates in the ministry. So don't despise him. Even if he doesn't always do everything right, help him, encourage him, send him along in peace. Don't hassle him, you see. Send him away with a peaceful spirit. Now, again, let me cite an illustration from our own family here. And I do so not in, in rebuke, because I'm certainly in no position to, uh, to issue any sort, of, uh, any sort of rebuke to this body. But we've just had, over the past week or so, a couple of weeks, an, an illustration of this sort of thing, where there was a young man, a staff man here, who was young and inexperienced, and who, through failure, perhaps, to communicate some of his feeling about uh, his ministry and, and what, what matters in the ministry, completely miscommunicated, and parents misunderstood. And for about two weeks, we were getting phone calls. People were concerned and asking questions about some of the things that he was saying and doing. Now, the fact that people were challenging his ministry was, was not a concern to me. Because anyone has the right to challenge another person's ministry. Uh, your leaders and elders, pastors here, are not above contradiction. We're not your bosses. The, the only authority that we know around here is the Lord Jesus and his word. As Jesus put it, you have only one master, all your brothers. So we're all brothers in the ministry, and therefore we're not above contradiction. So anyone has the right to challenge what a what a, a member of the body of Christ is doing. But what concerned me was in some cases, not every case, but in some cases there was real hostility and anger and resentment. And that's the sort of thing you see that we, we just can't do as a body to one another. If a member of the body of Christ is failing in his responsibility or he's weak, then we need to help them. We need to move in alongside and support and encourage there may have to be some discipline that takes place in certain situations. Certainly not in this one, but, but it might call for some, some strong action at times. But whatever we do ought to be done in love and in a supportive way. As the writer of Hebrews puts it, 
Be sure that no one among you falls short of the grace of God. When you see a brother who's falling down, then you don't run off and leave him. You go back and you help him up. You encourage him. Uh, as a friend of mine says, Christians are the only ones who trample on their wounded in the way to, on the way into battle. And sometimes we're guilty of doing that. A brother falls and we, we don't stop to pick them up, we trample them. But that's not love, you see. Love is always redemptive. It's always encouraging. It always lifts up, builds up, and helps, ministers, and serves. So when you see a leader or any member of the body of Christ who's failing and falling, we need to help them along in peace, Paul says. Honor them for the ministry that God has given to them because they're engaged in a redemptive work. It's God's work. And then in verse 12, he turns to Apollos. But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren. It was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. Now, Apollos was Timothy's exact counterpart. Timothy was uh, timid and inclined to be despised because of his timidity. Apollos was a learned man. He was from Alexandria, which was the intellectual center of, of the Roman world. Luke describes him as a learned person. Most of our translations state eloquent, but the word really is learned. He was highly skilled, highly schooled, well-equipped. He was probably trained in the Greek uh, uh, schools of rhetoric as a debater and philosopher. And uh, he had come to, uh, to Ephesus and had begun to preach, and it was there that, that Aquila and Priscilla found him and and straightened him out. His message wasn't uh, quite right. He, there were some things he needed to understand, and Aquila and Priscilla got him on the right uh, right foot. And, and then he went back to Corinth, and he began to preach there. And he had a tremendous impact upon the city of Corinth. Eloquent, gifted speaker. But uh, the problem was that unlike Timothy, who tended to repel people, Apollos tended to attract them. And so a sect grew up around Apollos. We read uh, that, that story in the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians. There was a, a group that followed Apollos and a group that followed Peter and a group that followed Paul, and the church was beginning to splinter up around these various leaders. And apparently Apollos, rather than cause further trouble, came back to Ephesus. He left Corinth because he didn't want to split the church there, and now he's, he's with Paul in Ephesus. And Paul, who could look upon Apollos as a competitor, calls him his brother. And he says, I encouraged him to come back to Corinth. Now that's, that's a great man who can have that perspective on another man's ministry. He wasn't threatened by Apollos, even though Apollos' uh, going back to Corinth might result in, in less esteem for Paul. But it didn't matter. It didn't bother Paul that people flocked to Apollos when Paul always seemed to, again, have a, the other effect on people. He wanted Apollos to succeed, and he encouraged him. He didn't command him. You see, he is an apostle, and he had that authority. Only the apostles have that authority to command, but Paul doesn't use it. He simply appealed to him as a brother to go back to Corinth and carry on the work, but Apollos preferred not to at this point. And it just reminds me again that those of us that are involved in ministry are not in competition with one another. I heard someone say just this past week, with regard to another pastor in this area. He's my competitor. No, he's not. We're not in competition with Treasure Valley Bible Church. 
or Christian or Boise Valley Christian Communion or Central Assembly or any other church. We may not agree with everything that's taught in every other church, but on the basics in general we agree on the heart of the gospel. And so we're brothers in Christ. We're not competing with one another. We don't care how many people go to their meetings. We're not interested in counting noses. The important thing is to do the work of the ministry, to carry out the particular distinctives that God has given to us and to encourage one another, wherever we are, within the body of Christ. And that's Paul's stress here with his brother Apollos. I encouraged him greatly to come to you. And then in verses 15 through 18, we have the fourth group, Stephanus and his friends Fortunatus and Achaicus. Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints, that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. And I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have supplied what was lacking on your part, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. Now, these are just names to us, but of course, to the Apostle Paul, they were good friends. And uh, these three men were apparently the men who were, formed the delegation that came from Corinth that brought the letter that informed Paul of many of the problems in, in Corinth. And uh, the points in this letter Paul has taken up in series in his, in his response in 1 Corinthians. Stephanus, we know, because he's mentioned earlier in 1 Corinthians, was the first person that Paul baptized in, in Achaia, Achaia, southern Greece. And uh, the cities of Athens and Corinth were both in Achaia. So apparently when Paul went down to Athens and he preached the gospel in the marketplace, and then he was invited up to Mars Hill to preach, Stephanus responded. Whether he was one of the Areopagi, one of the philosophers at Mars Hill, or whether he was simply someone in the marketplace that heard Paul. Paul says he was the first fruits of Achaia, the first Christian convert, and when he became a Christian, his entire household followed suit, and all of them now belong to the Lord. When I read this passage this past week, I thought of the Matthias, David and, and Marlene, how I think first, if I have my facts straight, Marlene was saved, and then her husband, and then really their marriage was saved as a result and then the rest of their household, and now they're out saving others. They, like Stephanus, have dedicated themselves to the service of the Lord. And there are, of course, many, many other families that are doing the same thing here in our body. They're devoted, Paul says, to the ministry to the saints. The word that's translated devoted here is a word that was used in uh, the Greek vocabulary uh, of that day of, of drug addiction. They were These people were addicted to caring for one another, to ministering to the saints. They were hooked on hospitality. They just loved people, and they wanted to give themselves to people. As far as we know, they weren't uh, part of the leadership, even in Corinth. When Paul says, be subject to them, he uses a compound form of the same word that's used devoted earlier. It really means to devote yourself in the sense that you listen to them. You let them teach you and instruct you and, and help you in various, learn from them. That's what he means. Here was a family that freely gave of themselves to people. And again, that's always the mark, you see, of God's family. They love one another. They give to meet the needs of the poor. They give for their, there may be a weaker brother 
They give to encourage somebody else's ministry. They give in order to care for those that are hurting in various ways. And, and Stephanus and his family apparently had opened up their hearts and opened up their homes in Corinth, and, and it was a place that was known for service to the saints. And that ought to be true of us as well. You don't need any special training for that. You don't have to go to seminary to minister to the saints. You can begin by opening up your home. You don't have to wait till you get a new sofa or fix the hole in the carpet or shampoo the rug or whatever. You can start inviting people over now. Just cook a little uh, extra at lunch. Got a number of students and people from the air base, young uh, single people and others that you can invite over and get to know and start helping in various ways and encourage. There are people in the hospitals whom you can call and encourage. We've heard time and time again from various individuals how much they've appreciated just a call from some some member of the family here to encourage them in a time of need. You can begin to give and care uh, and minister to the needs of the saints. And this is what Stephanus had done in his family. And Paul says, it had the result of refreshing my spirit. The word that he uses here for refreshment is the word that Jesus uses when he talks about the rest that he gives. I'll give rest to your souls. Paul said, it made me restful. It just ministered to my needs. It made me peaceful. And I thought of Isaiah's words, the, the, the Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I might know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. You see, that's the problem. The world is, is a wearisome place. You just get tired of facing the, the struggles and the stress and the problems in the world. And I don't know about you, but I just get weary. And what great, what a great thing it is to find a saint who refreshes your soul. And that was true of, of Stephanus and his family. It's true of many of you. You bring rest wherever you go. Isaiah goes on in that chapter to say, The Lord God awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. That's where it begins. You start listening to the Lord. You expose yourself to the word. And you let God teach you. And then you ask God to use you to bring rest to others. And he will, as he did in the case of Stephanus and his household. And then finally in verse 19, there's this word from the uh, word of greeting from the churches of Asia. The churches of Asia greet you. And Prisca, Aquila and Prisca greet you heartily in the Lord. Prisca is just the shortened form of, of Priscilla. These two saints that we know about from the book of Acts. Aquila and Prisca greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. That one phrase, the churches in Asia greet you, is a very pregnant phrase. Paul had come down to Ephesus some months before, and he began to preach in the synagogue as his pattern was. He was there for about three months, and then he was rather forcibly object, uh, ejected from the synagogue. It was always Paul's way to either create a revival or a riot wherever he went. People couldn't be neutral about the apostle. And in this case, uh, they drove him out of the synagogue, and probably I would leave town, but Paul went right next door to the house, to the hall of Tyrannus. Tyrannus was a Gentile philosopher, a Greek philosopher, and he had a hall there that uh, he used uh, probably during the evening hours to lecture on philosophy. So the Apostle Paul rented that hall. 
And uh, one of the one of the other versions, one of the other texts, tells us that for five hours a day, every day of the week, Paul taught the scriptures in the hall of Tyrannus. And the gospel began to spread throughout Corinth. It began to, to heal broken lives and mend marriages and rebuild relationships and bring peace where there was unrest. And, and it literally exploded out of Ephesus throughout all of Asia. And all the little churches that you read about in the book of Revelation, the church in Thyatira and in Pergamum and in Smyrna and Sardis, Laodicea and Philadelphia, all those churches were the result of Paul's teaching in the city of Ephesus because people began to discover these great life-changing truths and they began to carry them out to the world. And things began to happen. And so Paul says, all the churches in Asia greet you. And behind that is, is an example of the power of the gospel. It's gone everywhere, changing lives. And these people now are a part of this family that you people in Corinth belong to. And they greet you as well. And oh yeah, Aquila and Priscilla, they want to greet you as well and the church that's in their house. Aquila and Priscilla were Jews. They were from the Black Sea area and they had moved down to Rome to ply their trade there. Uh, Aquila was a tent maker and evidently a very successful one. And uh, they had been forced out of Rome by the Roman authorities and they had come over to Corinth and they met Paul there. They lived together for a while because Paul also was a tent maker. And then they came to Ephesus. And it was while they were in Ephesus that they ran into this young intellectual, Apollos, who didn't quite have the gospel straight. Luke does an interesting thing in describing their contact with Apollos. Luke's a very careful historian. There's always a reason for the way he states things. And, and in that particular instance, he states Aquila or Priscilla's name first, which is very unusual. It would be like saying Mrs. and Mr. Roper. He says, Priscilla and Aquila took Apollos and instructed him in the way more accurately. And I'm reading between the lines. I'm not sure at all. But I have a feeling that what happened is that, that Priscilla came back uh, home one day to, to her husband, Aquila. and She said, you know, I just heard this fine young man teaching in one of the halls downtown. And, and he's gifted and he has a great heart for God. But he just doesn't understand the gospel. Let's go help him. Let's invite him into our home for dinner. Let's let's share the truths that the Apostle Paul has taught us. And I'm sure Aquila, if he's like most men, would say, Oh, no, Priscilla, I, I'm just a businessman. Well, I don't know any philosophy or theology. How can I help Apollos? I don't have anything to offer to him. But apparently they followed through, and the result was that a, a man, a gifted man, was established in the ministry. And not only that, apparently a church was established in their home. They evidently had a very large home, and they threw it open to the people in Ephesus, and they gathered there on the first day of the week to worship in their home, which is where most of the worship took place throughout the first three centuries of the church. Now, as I look through these series of names, to us they're just names. But to Paul, they were people. They were all part of the family, people who were giving and serving and loving each other in various ways. Now, I deliberately skipped two verses because I think these verses are the heart of the entire matter. They tell us how we go about uh, being what God has called us to be. I don't know about you, but I know I ought to love people in this manner, but I have a very difficult time loving people. 
I, uh, I can isolate myself from people with the greatest of ease. I can overlook their needs. I can be harsh. I can be cynical. It's not easy for me to love. I need, I need a resource to count on to be loving. And that's what Paul supplies for us in verses 13 and 14. Series of commands. First, be on the alert. Keep your eyes open. Watch out for false teaching because it's abroad. Jesus said, as we get closer to his coming, we can expect to find more and more false teachers. It's to be expected. Some of you will remember some months ago the impact that John Todd had on the Christian community. This young man who supposedly was a member of the Illuminati and an ex-witch, warlock, and his tapes were being circulated widely through the church. I had a number of people who sent me tapes and asked me to listen to this, the amazing testimony of this young man. And as we now know, he was a fraud. He's been uncovered as a, as a, a, just a, a fraud. He was lying. And yet, we as Christians were gullible. We weren't on the alert. Paul's saying, first of all, be alert. And then secondly, stand firm in the faith. That's the counterpart. That's the reason you're alert, because you want to stand firm in the faith. The faith here is the faith which was delivered by the prophets and the apostles. That is, the word of God. If someone comes into your assembly and they teach something contrary to the word of God, or they come over the, your, in your home through radio or television, it doesn't matter how charismatic they may be, how powerful, how dynamic, how loving they may appear, how godly they may seem to be, how many miracles they work, how many signs they do, what visions or dreams they see. If they say something contrary to the word of God, reject it. Stand firm in the faith that the apostles and prophets have given to you and act like men. Now, you can even say that to women. Be a man. And somehow we automatically know what it means. No one has to spell it out for us. We need to be men. We need to stand tall like men. We need to exhibit our Christian manhood in all circumstances. You know, man is the only part of God's creation that acts contrary to his nature. We alone of all creation can be unmanly. We can act in ways that are contrary to what we really are. C.S. Lewis once pointed out that uh, you would never think of clapping an alligator on the back and saying, come on, be an alligator. Because alligators always act uh, in accordance with their nature, but man doesn't. We sometimes are not manly. And Paul tells us what we have to do to be manly. In the last imperative in verse 13, we have to be made strong. Unfortunately, the, the translations obscure the fact that the verb is passive. It's not be strong. That's what the world tells us. Get tough. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. That's a, that's a good secular strategy. Be strong, but that's not the word of God. God says be strengthened, be made strong in Christ. As Paul puts it to Timothy, who of all men need to, needed to be strong, he says be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We need to be strengthened by Christ Jesus, by his life who indwells us. You see, that's what makes us men and women. A.W. Tozer said, 
If you ask me why I became a Christian, it's precisely because I wanted to be a man. It takes God to make a man. It's his power in us that makes it possible for us to be loving and to be supportive and to encourage others. And that's why Paul goes on in verse 14 to say, let all that you do be done in love. That's the reason for everything. You may have to correct. You may have to rebuke. You may have to discipline. Sometimes love is tough. Sometimes love is tender. But Paul says, whatever you do, let the reason be love. And that's the mark of a man. That's what distinguishes us as God's men and women. We love and we give and we serve and we don't care about ourselves and what happens to us. We let God worry about us. He's adequate for that. And we get concerned with others. You know, there is a so-called lost saying of Jesus. It's not really lost. There are a lot of books that have been in circulation in the last several years that are purportedly collections of the lost sayings of Jesus. They're not. But there is one saying of Jesus that's not found in the Gospels, but the apostles remembered it, and Paul knew it. It's found in Acts 20. Paul quotes Jesus, and he says, The Lord said, It's more blessed to give than receive. Do you believe that? To be blessed means to be happy. It makes you happier to give than receive. Now, the world has turned that around. What makes you happy is to receive love. If, you could, if your husband just loved you the way he ought to love you, then you'd be happy, or your wife, or your children, or your parents. Or if someone would just give me some money, I'd be happy. Or if someone would give me a car, or give me a coat, or take me out to dinner, or be my friend, then I would be happy. But you know... That's a bottomless pit. There's no end to what we want if we receive it. We just want more. You'll never be happy getting. And that's why Jesus said, you'll be happier giving than getting. You'll be far happier giving away your home and giving away your money and your clothes and your time and your energy and your love and everything that you have. That's what makes us successful. That's what makes us happy. That's what it means to be a man or a woman in Christ. Let's pray, shall we? Thank you, Father. That you're the one who makes it all possible. Thank you for your strength. We want to be strengthened by it. In Jesus' name, amen.